What does it mean to suffer as a Christian? When you hear that question, what comes to your mind? Does it mean you have to um, be burned at the stake for your faith? Or maybe killed by cannibals that you were trying to evangelize to? Maybe it's fleeing from your home because the government has found out that you are a Christian and they are on their way to throw you and your family into jail. Now these are real heartbreaking things that have happened to our brothers and sisters around the world for centuries. And these things are definitely forms of suffering and persecution. But in our text tonight, we're going to see a different kind of suffering that all Christians should be experiencing at some level. A type of suffering that can come from lifetime friends, unregenerate family members or spouses. A suffering that is not from sacrificing your safety for the spread of the gospel, but a suffering that comes from a changed life. If you are not already there, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. And to sound like a broken record, I'm going to remind us again that 1 Peter was written to suffering Christians who were um, under increasing amounts of persecution for their faith. And this is what we will be looking at in our text tonight, but this is also what the entire um, the context of all of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, reads this way. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. As Tom pointed out last time, our text this evening is found at the end of an argument Peter is making for Christians who suffer for doing good. In chapter 3, verse 17, we see it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be the will of God, than for doing evil. But then Peter goes on in verse 18 to show that as he is exhorting these Christians that doing good and suffering for it is better than doing evil, he has Christ's example in suffering in his mind. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So building off of this, Peter exhorts his readers, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Peter is tying our understanding of doing good 
and suffering for it with what Christ has done for us. Peter is saying it is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil because this is what happened to Christ. And since this is what happened to him, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. This is an interesting picture, isn't it? To arm yourselves with a way of thinking. So in the same way a soldier puts on his armor and takes up his weapon is the same way we should put on this way of thinking. It guards and protects us through our thinking and makes us ready. But what is it preparing us for? How can looking at Christ's suffering help us in our suffering? Peter goes on, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So Peter is grounding his argument in Christ's righteousness, who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. As he said in chapter three, verse 18, and as we read in chapter two, verse 24, he did this so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Peter is tearing apart this notion that righteous living will bring with it a easy, suffering-free life. Instead, he is saying that righteous living will bring with it suffering. He is saying that suffering is a result of ceasing from sin. Maybe you are in here tonight and you're like, I get it. I see what the text is saying. But I'm not sure I've really experienced this in my life. And if that is you, I want to ask you a question. Is there a sin you need to cease from? Is there something right now that is coming to your mind that is heavy on your conscience? Christian, cease from sin. Pray that God would show you through his word what you need to repent of. That you would stand out for his glory and not fit in for your comfort. Pray that he would lead you not into temptation, but deliver you from evil. But friends, this does not mean we do this perfectly. I'm reminded every day why I need my righteous Savior who died so I can live righteously. The idea here is not our perfection in ceasing from sin, but that we are ceasing from sin. The idea is that the more and more we look like Christ's righteousness through what he has done for us, making us alive to live this way, making us alive to say no to the passions of the flesh that he urged us to abstain from in chapter two, verse 11, the more we will suffer. But there is something else in these verses that I want us to see. Peter shows that arming ourselves with this way of thinking has a purpose. And he continues in verse two in our text, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So as to, or for the purpose of, living for the rest of the time on earth, no longer for what our flesh wants, but for what God wants even if that means suffering while doing good, as we read earlier. 
in arming ourselves with remembering Christ's righteousness and suffering is to help us to that end. But what does this look like? I mean, how does thinking a certain way help us to live for God and not our flesh? Peter is connecting our thought life and how we live. Friends, our thoughts about our Savior and what he endured and what he accomplished for us will affect how we live. But what thoughts are armor and what thoughts aren't? Is this some kind of advice you would see in a self-help book where Peter is trying to tell his readers, you don't have it as bad as Jesus did, so when you're struggling, just remember that. That's not the arm in your mind that he is referring to here at all. Peter is exhorting them to think about Christ's suffering accomplished for them. A mind armored with Christ's suffering looks to his finished work, his suffering that brought us life and says, that is my hope. My confidence is not in me, but in Christ. He, has, he was perfect and suffered for it. But through that perfection and suffering, he has brought me to God and made me alive to righteousness. So through him, I can live according to God's will and not for human passions. Friend, arming ourselves with this way of thinking is being confident in what our suffering servant did for us because he bought our obedience. Our lives are evidence of that. And in the next verse, we see this change. In verse three, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The term here, suffices, might be better described as far too much or maybe more than enough. The idea is that we should live now because of Christ's work for the rest of the time, for the will of God and not for the passions of the flesh, and that the time we did live according to the flesh was enough. Is this the way we view our lives? Do we see the time that we had to live unhindered from doing exactly what we sinfully desired as enough? Do we see that time as far too much time or more than enough time or sufficient time? Christian, I don't know if God saved you so early in your life, you can't remember a time without him. And if that's true, praise God. Or if God saved you later in life and you have memories, you have a glimpse of what you could have been apart from his grace, the way you could have spent all your days on this earth. But either way, whether you can't remember or your memories bring you tears, that time for living according to the passions of the flesh was more than enough. Either one second or a hundred years, that time was more than enough for doing what we see the world around us doing. Living in sensuality, passions, 
drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And to remind us, this list was penned in 62 AD. And yet the accuracy in describing the world around us, what the Gentiles want to do, makes it seem like it was written down yesterday. To list some of them, living in sensuality refers to an unrestrained indulgence of one's desire, especially for sensual pleasures. Passions is speaking of evil desire, often relating to sexual immorality. Drunkenness is habitual drunkards. The overarching theme is doing whatever you want to do with no restraint, specifically with sexual activity and alcohol with groups of people doing the same thing, which many times was used to worship false gods, but also at its heart is idolatry. These are the things that Christians had more than enough time for and should now put them away. We put these things away as we abide in Christ who made us alive to righteousness. And the fruit of this will be a visible change in our lives. In verse 4, Peter continues, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them, join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They are surprised. This word gives the picture of someone being entertained by another. So there is a sense in which they cannot stop looking at us because it's a novelty to them. But it's not only weird to them, one author put it as a resentful astonishment. And this leads to what Peter says next. They malign you. They insult, slander, and defame you. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. For the very thing in which they ought to speak well of you, men will speak evil of you. If you will not drink as they do, if you will not follow after their simple pleasures as they do, if you will not sing their song or use their language, then straight away they will hate you and call you a hypocrite. It is a pity that if we are not willing to go into sin as they do, they should for that reason speak ill of us. Yet this is what we must expect. Isn't this what Peter is talking about in verse one? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So in arming ourselves with this way of thinking, we have confidence in Christ's finished work for us so that we can live for the will of God. But there is also another aspect of what arming ourselves with this way of thinking looks like. Since Christ was righteous and suffered, we should expect that the more we look like the righteousness we have in Christ, that he has made us alive to, the more we will suffer. But friends, this does not mean we live in fear or paranoia. What it means is that as we lose lifetime friends because of abstaining from sin, as family members mock us because we walk differently than we once did and the world hates us, we can say, this is what happened to my savior. Jesus never sinned and they nailed him to a tree. 
So Christian, think this way. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. As we looked at earlier, righteousness, righteous living does not produce a suffering-free life. Suffering for righteousness' sake can be fruit of your salvation because we are growing more like our Savior. Isn't this also what Jesus said in Matthew 10? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So what is our hope in the midst of this suffering? Peter continues in verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter is saying, the more you look like Christ, the more you abstain from the passions of the flesh, the more distance you put between you in the world in all of its sexual drunken idolatry through Christ's work in you the more you will suffer as he did but someday these people who malign you will stand before a righteous judge and give account for every word that has come out of their mouth everyone the living and the dead they will give an account for living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, and how they treated you for not joining in with them. Our hope is in the perfect, righteous judge who will judge rightly. He is the one who is trustworthy. But friends, this does not mean we look to them and out of anger think you'll get what's coming to you. That's not how we should read this text at all. Knowing that they will give an account does free us. But we have to remember, apart from Christ's work in us, there would be no difference between us and them. Remember how Peter pointed this out in verse 3, that they had enough time for doing what the Gentiles do. Verse 3, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. This is how they once lived as well. So as we suffer by these people, we should not lose sight of the fact that the only separation between us is the grace of God. And that is Christ in us. So we hold on to the fact that they will give an account and there is relief in that. But we should never be like the self-righteous Pharisees who arrogantly praise God that they were not like them. Instead, we should pray that God would use our suffering, even at their hands, as an opportunity for them to hear the gospel, repent, and be saved. We should pray for an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is in us that Peter exhorted us to be able to do in chapter 3, verse 15. But even if this does not happen, we can rest knowing that they will give an account to his, him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter continues in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now there is some debate or confusion on how this verse is interpreted. 
But as we <coughs> look at this verse, we shouldn't interpret the clear by the unclear. We shouldn't look to the clear and let, we should look to the clear and let it help us interpret the unclear. In other words, we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. With this in mind, we read what Peter writes in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. So as, so to address the elephant in the room, is Peter saying that the gospel is preached to those who are dead? Because that understanding of this verse would conflict with other clear verses in the Bible and through careful examination of the original language, we would have to say no. It most likely is referring to Christians who had the gospel preached to them and have since died. Even after working through this, the rest of the verse is still debated in its meaning. So instead of me trying to unpack it, I'm going to read an excerpt from Ligonier's website on this verse, which other resources I agree and trust with recommend. Today's passage, referring to 1 Peter 4, 6, reminds us that all those who suffer for doing good will, shall be vindicated at the last day. We have already seen that unrepentant humanity will be condemned at the final judgment. Verse 6 tells us that because of this coming judgment, the gospel was preached also to the dead so that though judged in the flesh, they might live in the spirit. The word dead here refers to Christians who were once alive. It might seem that their deaths are invalidated the promises of God to vindicate his servants. Yet God's promise holds true. Dead believers are still alive, dwelling with God and waiting for the final judgment. At the judgment, those who did God's will by putting their faith in Christ will be vindicated before all flesh, but those who did not shall suffer eternal punishment. This is our comfort in the midst of suffering. At the end of our text, Peter has told his readers to expect suffering, to expect to live a righteous life through Christ's finished work and be slandered and made fun of for it. After all this, Peter goes, gives them more of Christ for hope. He grounds their hope in the judgment day that is to come and in their eternal life they have in Christ. That even though Christians have physically died on this earth, that's not the end. So Christians, have you, so Christian, have you been ridiculed or maligned? Trust the one who will judge the living and the dead. And as we said in the Nicene Creed this morning, he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. Also remember, this is not your home. As we sang this morning, and so with thankfulness and faith we rise to response and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth as we share in his sufferings, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven, 
around the table of the king. Friend, how do you know Jesus? Are you going to know him as the righteous judge? Or will you know him as Savior, Lord, and King? I urge you, look to the cross, repent of your sins, believe, and be saved. Let's pray. Father, cause us, your children, your people, to live this way. As we suffer for righteousness' sake, cause us to remember our wonderful Savior who suffered for us, who paid for our obedience and left us his example. May we be armed with this way of thinking as your your word has told us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.